one of the things that uh, was emphasized when I was in seminary was making sure that you come up with a really great introduction to capture people's attention. I'm really glad that today with a sermon called Sex and the Christian Life, that I probably don't have to do much to get your attention. I expect that you're already paying attention, wondering, what is it that I'm going to say in a sermon called Sex and the Christian Life? I'd like to just begin very briefly in talking about the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I've preached through this book recently, and this is the most recent sermon that I did at a church in Cortland in our denomination. And so, uh, fresh in my mind, what's going on in the book The book is written to a church, a group of people who uh, were gathered from the world uh, of people who were pagans and became Christians. And Paul and Silas and Timothy planted this church. And in comparison to other churches that Paul and his companions planted, uh, he was there for only a short time. When he was in Corinth, he was there for a year and a half, possibly two years, planting the church, training and and, uh, teaching people the essence of the Christian faith. But Paul and his companions in Thessalonica, because of the, the, the mobs and the crowd that were so upset at the teaching uh, that they were bringing, the Christian gospel that they had to flee from the city to save their lives within 21 to 28 days. And so this group of Christians, uh, everything that they know about the Christian faith has come within less than a month. They are thrown into... uh, disarray, really, in a lot of senses, as Paul and his companions are driven out. And the church is left wondering, were we taken advantage of? Were these traveling preachers who were just here to try to get our money or to somehow take advantage of us? Is what they had to teach true? Word comes to Paul and Silas and Timothy who have been trying to come back to this group of Christians that in this very short time they've developed such a heart for. They've grown to love this group of people. And they're writing one of the most personal letters that is in the entire New Testament that is uh, filled with language of the Paul saying that he loves the church like a nursing mother. Or that he's like a father disciplining his children. That he is like a brother to them. The the family metaphors go throughout the the language. And and over and over we just express the depths of the love that Paul and Silas and Timothy have for this group to reassure them. That the gospel message is true. That their love was genuine and they were not out to try to get anything from them. Rather, to bring them the truth of the gospel. And then a theological shift 
happens in the book, going from relationships and uh, making sure that they are on the same page when it comes to the understanding of the truth of the gospel. They go from the heavy theological content to really more of the practical elements of this letter. And the rest of the letter is going to be correcting some of the things that theologically have gone astray in this church because they simply don't know better because of their lack of training in the scriptures. But also the ways in which Paul and his companions want to encourage them to live their lives. One of the unique things about the church Uh, in the first century that really was one of the huge catalysts for why they went from such a small group to such a large portion of the Roman Empire uh, within the period of 300 years, politics notwithstanding with Constantine. But uh, the, the thing that made Christianity so appealing, so noticeable, is that Christians had a different view of sex, money, power, and death. And those are the things that Paul is going to hit on in this letter. When he starts trying to tell them, here's what's important for you to know, here's how it's important for you to live in a way that is a life that's pleasing to God. And Paul and his companions start with sex. That's the thing that they want to hit on first. And it's because they lived in a culture saturated with sex and sexuality that is not in line with a biblical worldview. We would know nothing about that, right? We also, like the first century people live in a culture when it comes to sex and sexuality that is not much different than the people to whom Paul is writing. He wants to start with sex because it's so ubiquitous in the Roman Empire and because it's important. Now, I think oftentimes in Christian circles we're afraid to have sermons about sex. We're afraid to talk about sex. Sometimes maybe we're a little embarrassed. But sex was created by God for a purpose, and sex is good. And so the Bible, therefore, is not ever ashamed when it talks about sex. It doesn't tiptoe around sex and sexuality. It doesn't whisper. Instead, uh, we're going to see something different if we take a look uh, throughout all of what the scripture has to teach us about sex and sexuality. What we're going to see more than any sort of embarrassment is actually a holding up of the goodness of sex in the right context. And that's part of what Paul and his companions want to talk to him to to this church about, and what I want to talk to you about. Have you ever gone to a carnival or a fair circus and seen those mirrors that when you look in them, 
You look different. There's a distorted view of yourself. You might look taller. You might look shorter. You might look thinner. You might look wider. You might look all sorts of different shapes because these mirrors that we are looking into distort what reality is. The point that Paul and his companions, the point that the Bible is making to us over and over is that because of sin, our understanding and our natural instincts about sex and sexuality are like looking into a distorted mirror. Our view of sexuality that comes to us from our culture, maybe even comes just naturally, is distorted because of sin. And the claim that Paul is going to make and I'm going to make and other scripture writers are going to make is if you want to see the undistorted view of what sex is, what sex purpose is, you need to look to the scriptures. And only in looking to the scriptures can you see what the true purpose that God has created sex for. And so... I just want to talk about this passage in two points. A distorted view of sex and the purpose of sex. Distorted view of sex, purpose of sex. So, as I've already said, the Bible's not embarrassed to talk about this. But some of the distorted views of sex would be. And some of those distorted views of sex have pushed their way into the church. Paul's letters show, uh, not to this church, but also especially to the Corinthians, show a group of Christians who are more influenced by the world and culture around them than they are by God's word. The same is true today. The same is probably true of every single one of us in this room. We are more influenced by the culture and world around us than we're aware. And so I want to talk about some of these distorted views of sex so that we can say, well, this isn't it, this isn't it, and this isn't it. So I want to talk about one that maybe today is not the primary distorted view of sex, but it has been in the past, and there are still elements in the Christian church that make us embarrassed to have a sermon that's talking all about sex. I'm not embarrassed. I hope you're not embarrassed. I'm just saying that one could be embarrassed to talk about something like this. But that is the view that sex is dirty. That sex is weird. And so we can see this in in some movements of uh, pilgrims and Puritans and other groups at times. And in uh, the early 19th century, 18th century, 20th century, this idea that somehow sex is something that we ought not to uh, really be thinking about. I mean, thinking about... uh, Victorian England and some of the, the manuals that were given to, uh, to the women to, to say, you know, your best friend in your marriage is feigned headaches and uh, all of these things that can uh, limit 
the amount of times in a week that you may engage in sex to two maximum. But hopefully, as you grow in maturity, that this number will decrease as time goes on. Well, this is not the biblical view of sex. This is a view that goes back far in the past. Paul is going to address it in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, if you look at those letters, in these people who are saying, we are spiritual Christians and so we can't can't associate ourselves with anything that is of this world, of this body, because the spiritual world is good and the physical world is bad. Not for the writers of Scripture. God himself, when he created this world, said, it is good. When he created humans in their human bodies, he said, it is very good. We live in a physical world, not because of sin, but because of God's design. And so this view that makes somehow the things of our bodies be dirty is an unbiblical view of things. And so Paul, in other letters, has to combat this idea of the the purpose of uh, marriage is only for having children, and that uh, as the, the, the marriage goes on, that they ought to more and more abstain from sex. We can write this idea off. Because God created Adam and Eve in the beginning and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were naked and they were not ashamed. This is a good gift that God has given. But I want to spend the most time in this point talking about these other two distorted views. And those two views are, it's just sex. And... Sex is everything. And on the surface, they may sound very, very different. But they go hand in hand most of the time. Uh, So it's just sex. This culture that we live in is something that could be described as a hookup culture. One where sex is considered to be meaningless to carry with it no real weight. Casual sex. Sex with no commitment. Sex outside of marriage. Well, what the authors of 1 Thessalonians are saying, and other places in the New Testament, is there's no such thing as casual sex. It's not just sex. But our culture will certainly tell us that it is. This mentality that if you are hungry, you eat something. If you're thirsty, you drink something. There's nothing ethical about that. If you're tired, you go to sleep. You have this desire, this thing that is born into almost all of us that is a sexual desire. And therefore, it is unnatural to not just engage and satisfy whatever longing you might have. Thinking of uh, the, the words of Woody Allen, 
in describing uh, his marriage to his adopted daughter, the heart wants what it wants. That could be uh, a summary of the it's just sex mentality, that we just want what we want, and there's no reason for us to think that it should be restrained. On the other side of things, there is this concept that sex is everything. You can look around at billboards, you can watch advertisements. I mean, gum commercials are trying to sell you gum by holding up this idea that if you chew this gum and your breath smells very, very nice, people are going to be attracted to you. And clearly that's the most important thing, right? If you use this shampoo or you use this uh, cologne, this uh, perfume, you are going to be desirable to other people as if that is the most important thing in this world. But I think you, have to, you can look to the, the movies and the TV shows and the stories that we tell as human beings, and this reveals what is really in our hearts. Uh, I'm older a little bit than uh, some of you in this room, and so when I'm thinking of relevant uh, stuff, I, you know, thinking on the way up, like, oh man, all of these things that seemed to me like really good cultural references are from like 20 years ago. Uh, but I'll use some of them anyways. Uh, and you could look, of course, to modern examples in, our, in the shows that we have, Game of Thrones and uh, Bridgerton and, uh, I haven't watched that, but I've heard, um, and, and even cartoons, disenchantment. This idea that sex is just really what makes the world go round, and if you're not having sex, you're missing out on the world. But you go back a little farther in time to when I was in high school, and you get movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, where these friends find out that a 40-year-old man has never had sex, and they are dumbfounded that something like this could even exist in the world, and that somehow he is not living a true, meaningful life because he has not had sex. Go back a little tiny bit farther, the American Pie movie, where... A young group of teenagers find, is, is coming to the end, end of high school and realize that they are losers because they've never had sex. And they need to just do everything they can so that before they leave high school, they have had sex because it's that important. If you're a little bit more into art films, Stealing Beauty... 19-year-old American goes abroad and the people in France find that this 19-year-old has never had sex, and they're just amazed that something like that, something that shocking, could exist. You might say, well, this is just the last 20, 30 years. Just keep going back. Risky business. 
Go back a little farther. The James Bond movie. I mean, what is the appeal of James Bond other than he is a true man? And go and have casual sex with woman after woman after woman. Does it go back further? Well, I want to go back to the earliest recorded story that we have. The Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh tells a very interesting story of a a creature, a wild beast-like god named Enkidu that, uh, that was created by the gods to keep this powerful king, Gilgamesh, in check. Gilgamesh catches wind of this and says, you know what? To gain victory over the gods, I need to turn this this creature, Enkidu, into a human. And so what does he do? He hires the the greatest brewmasters to brew the strongest beer that is possible in large amounts so that they can feed it to Enkidu so he'll get drunk. And then he hires a prostitute to come and have sex with him. And after he's drunk and he has sex, he becomes human. For the authors of this book, what it means to be human revolves around physical pleasure, drunkenness, and sex. This is one of the most pervasive ideas that puts sex on this pedestal that tells us to strive and strive for something that is going to change our lives, something that is somehow going to give us meaning. It is what Scripture will call an idol. Giving power to something that Scripture does not give power to. Putting something in the place that only God deserves. This is what our culture This is what has even invaded our hearts, is telling us. But Paul writes to this church to remind them of the truth. As I'm transitioning now between this point and the next point, the purpose of sex, I want to just reference a letter that was written in the first century the letter to Diognetus, when this author is trying to uh, explain Christianity and the differences. And one thing that the author says is that you share your table with no one, but your beds with everyone. But we Christians share our table with everyone but our beds with no one other than our spouse. It is the opposite of the instinct of the people in the Roman emperor, and I would venture to say it's the opposite instinct of our hearts and of the, the, the general view of sex in our culture. We might wonder, why is Christianity not growing the way it used to? Why are we not seeing the growth and the fruit? Maybe. One of the reasons is that we have lost what for Paul was a fundamental of what it means to be a Christian. 
that we view sex, money, power, and death differently. That quote, the letter to Diognetus, makes the point that Christians, in a culture that says, my possessions are mine and mine alone, my money is for me and my family alone. The power that I have is to be used for my own advancement. And we can see this in the church today as we more and more bend trying to be relevant, trying to remain in power, trying to remain culturally relevant rather than drawing lines of what is true. And we see it in sex and sexuality. The average Christian is not much different than the average person in the world. So here's the transition. Where the world says it's just sex. The Bible says you don't understand the power of sex. Where the the world says sex is everything, the scripture says, no, it's just sex. Paul and his companions teach us of the purpose of sex and sexuality. In In this passage, it says... Uh, the very beginning, the, the purpose is that, that they were going to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And this is the will of God. This is the will of God for your life. This is the will of, your, will, the will of God specifically in the area of sex and sexuality. Your sanctification. So, sanctification is uh, just a theological word that we use to talk about the work that God does in our hearts, taking this sinfulness and molding it more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a work that God does in our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that work enables us more and more to put sin to the side and live lives for righteousness. That's sanctification, and it calls us to work for a holy life. So sanctification is a work that God does. Holy life is something that we are to struggle and to pursue along with the power of the Holy Spirit. Your sanctification that you would be made more like Jesus Christ, that your heart would be shaped, that the sinfulness would be removed. The Bible is saying here that sex is for the purpose of sanctifying you and shaping you more into the image of Jesus Christ. Bold. Oftentimes we don't hear sex talked about in this way, but this is the purpose of sex. So, There is some wordplay that happens here in this passage where it says that every one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Uh, If you have a full footnote in your Bible, you might have 
that an equal translation of this might be, or to take a wife to himself in honor. And I think that the word play is actually both and, not either or, but our translations often have to just choose what they think uh, the writers of Scripture are trying to say. But I think that they're trying to say both things. That your sanctification, the, the way in which it would happen, that it would be manifest in your life is through two things. That you learn how to control your own body. Learn to have self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. And that you would know how to take a spouse in honor and holiness. And this is the work of God for your sanctification. It may seem strange, but I think that all of us instinctively understand that there are contexts that change things. For instance, I work for a company that I'm an analyst, and I'm working in a uh, system that deals with patients' records because I support a hospital. All day, every day, I open patients' charts. I test things out. I examine what's there, make sure it's working. I troubleshoot. This is doing my job. But if I'm in the system and I happen to notice that a friend of mine has just been admitted to the hospital and I'm wondering what's going on and I open that patient's chart, that's not called doing work. That's called a crime that I will lose my job for. The same thing in different contexts can be okay or not okay. And this is what scripture is teaching us about sex. There is a context in which it is okay and sanctifies you, and there's a context in which it is not okay, and it pollutes you. It pollutes your body, and it pollutes the church, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians. The purpose of sex is to shape you into the image of Christ. So, how does this work? How does this happen? And I just want to talk about this in two different arenas. There are some of you who are single. And you might be saying, well, if sex in marriage is for sanctification, then really, none of this applies to me. Well, it does. In that your sanctification is that you abstain from sex in the improper context, that you would wait for the good gift that God has for you to receive God's goodness in marriage. And when you do this, the likeness of God is being produced in you. You are abstaining from sex and sexuality, and you are learning to think not about yourself first but about God and others first. This is what is so central in Scripture, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would think not only on our own needs, but also on the needs 
of others. That you can learn during this time of singleness how to be faithful, how to control yourself, and how to think about your future spouse even now. Think about him or her and wait. And you are being taught the holiness of God. The Holy Spirit is working in your life. If you are married, honestly, it's not much different. Because the purpose of sex in either context is for you to learn to stop thinking about yourself first. And when you do that, you are becoming more and more like Christ. You are becoming more and more holy. The purpose of sex in marriage is that both partners would be thinking about this for the sake of the other. That they would be developing this relationship and it would not in any way be about power, abusive, sex wouldn't be a weapon or a tool or a bargaining chip. That in, in, in fact, that it would be something that would happen often. I mean, Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians. That if you are married, the purpose that God has for you is that you would be having sex, good sex, and often. Now, I do want to put a little caveat there, that if you're sitting here thinking, I hope my spouse is listening to this, you are the problem in your sex life. Because sex is for the mutual benefit of husband and wife. Sex is about you learning to lay your pleasure and your needs aside and to focus on the pleasure and joy of your spouse. That is what you ought to do. And if that is where you are at, then you need to step back and be reminded of your calling to think of others before yourself. So, this image of a marriage where partners are learning to love one another first I think is one of the the major reasons that Paul and others in the New Testament will take this, this metaphor of a marriage as being an image of Christ and his church. It is not a mistake. Because the love that Christ has already given to us, exhibited on the cross, is that he has set aside his own need. Look to the Garden of Gethsemane. He has set aside his own desires as a human even for the sake of another and laid down his life for you, for your salvation. And our calling as Christians is to learn to do the same thing to Christ, to submit ourselves, even in areas that don't make sense, like sex and sexuality. Some things that may just seem natural. Some things that may just seem inherently right. We need to submit ourselves to Scripture and say, maybe my moral compass is what's broken, not the Scripture. 
we learn to put God before ourselves. That is our calling. That is what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians as he's teaching them to live a life pleasing to the Lord. The Lord has already laid down everything for you. And now you are called to lay down what might seem to you to be good. But what God is telling you is not good. So that you could receive the good gift that God has for you. That is our calling as Christians. That is the the very message of the gospel that Christ has laid down himself for us. We, sorry, we who offered nothing to Christ received his love fully, truly, and he took on himself our sins, bore them on the cross, And we as Christians can mirror that, show that forth to a broken world by the ways that we love one another. And paradoxically, one of the ways in which we love one another in this room, future spouse, current spouse, is by refraining from sex outside of marriage, keeping your bed in your marriage pure and undefiled, not stepping outside of that marriage and showing the truth that Christ is faithful to his church like we are called to be faithful to our spouses. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word speaks to us today, speaks into our situation, is as true and applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, sanctify us, cleanse us. Let us through restraining from sex outside of marriage from engaging in sex within marriage. Come to know your love. Come to learn love one for another and learn to put ourselves second. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.